welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Well, over, over the years, my, oh my gosh, 32 years in ministry, I've had on multiple occasions had the uh, privilege of having people leave right after I preached a sermon and sometimes in the middle of me preaching a sermon. And today I will be, it'll be my first experience to leave uh, right after I preach a sermon. So uh, I've, got to, I've got to get back to uh, my hometown here this afternoon very quickly. So I'm going to be popping out right after this. And that means I'm going to ask Jane Gerbrand if you would uh, be a uh, chalicer this morning. How about that? All right, good deal. Now that we have that taken care of, uh, let's turn our thoughts and our hearts back to that gospel passage. I want us to kind of get deep into Matthew's gospel this morning. Uh, we we hear a lot of uh, a lot of preparatory scriptures when it comes to this time of year as we prepare for the uh, for the nativity for the for the birth of Jesus Christ. And this text today perhaps might not be one of the most familiar ones, but it is a critical text of scripture. From the gospel text we heard today, we're confronted with this, okay? And this is key to understanding this passage. Both of Jesus' parents, his mother Mary and his adoptive father Joseph, were willing to bear shame. Mary and Joseph were willing to bear shame because of their association with Jesus. You see, in the ancient Mediterranean and Near Eastern culture, uh, there was such a, an intense consciousness and awareness. They were so preoccupied with shame and honor. And we can even hear this concern with honor in the Scriptures. If you go back to Proverbs chapter 22, it speaks of honor as being more important even than having wealth. And in our culture, we've reversed that. We think that having wealth is more important than having honor. But listen to what it says in Proverbs 21 verse, uh, 22 verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver and gold. And that's why we're all familiar with the situation with the Pharisees in the New Testament. Excuse me, not with the Pharisees, but uh, the tax collectors in the New Testament. The tax collectors had great wealth. They even had power in their society, but they had no honor. They were a, it was a shamed occupation. And so they had very little social position because of shame. And we don't really understand just how com uh, compelling the, the shame-honor culture is because for the most part, post-enlightenment, Western culture is not concerned with shame but with guilt. You see, guilt is feeling bad. Guilt is a bad feeling about what I have done. It's like uh, I would feel guilty if I went and consumed that entire quart of eggnog that's in the refrigerator right now. I feel guilty. It was a bad thing to do. That would be over a 1,000 calories in one sitting. Now, when you're a 16-year-old boy, that makes no difference at all. But when you're a 58-year-old man, you're going to pay for that. And I would feel bad about that. But shame is a bad feeling about not what I have done, but who I am as a person. One reflects my actions, that's guilt, and the other reflects on my very essence, my very being as a person. It's fairly easy 
to get over guilt. You just stop doing bad things or maybe you make restitution. But shame sticks to you like, like gum sticks on your shoe. You can't get away from it because it's not about your actions, it's about your identity. It's, we, we, have no, we have no conception of the terror that shame held in traditional cultures, particularly as experienced in villages. Now, Lisa and I have the experience of living in, in a village. We lived on the Outer Banks in a fishing village for four years. In a fishing village on the Outer Banks, fairly isolated place. 800 souls. Let me tell you about living in a village. Everybody not only knows your business, they are all up in your business. All right. Everybody is making value judgments about you all the time. People talk about you in villages. The rumor mill in a village can grind you to a pulp. Uh, when we were living in the village on the Outer Banks, we lived in the rectory, you know, where the pastor lived, and the uh, dining room was at the front of the house facing the street that everybody drove by. There was a school on that street. It's a tiny little town. It's a village. And so this really happened, y'all. It's hard. To, I, I tell people this. I don't think they believe it. But if we ate in the dining room, we eventually had to close the blinds in the dining room because people would slow down and look into the rectory to see, as they were driving by, to see what we were doing, who we were eating with. We were just because the village wants to know what you're doing. And they know what you're doing. And they talk about what you're doing. And that's why Joseph, this, this man in the scripture here, is so remarkable in Matthew's account that we heard today because even before the dream, the vision that Joseph had received from the angel, he chooses not, listen, Joseph chooses not to evade or reduce. He doesn't try to run away or reduce his own shame by bringing Mary, which was his option, bringing Mary before a religious court in order to publicly divorce her. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, I want you to listen to what justice does here, okay? Here, Joseph is called a just man. Listen to what just, justice is about to do. And, just, and Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Isn't it amazing that justice is described actually as mercy in the life of Joseph. Wow, that's interesting. Now we need to stop right here and say a little bit about the betrothal practices of Palestinian Jews in the first century. So just pretend you're turning to the Discover, the History Channel. Here's the History Channel moment for you this morning. Uh, a betrothal was far more serious than an engagement is in our culture. In that culture, a betrothal was far more serious than an engagement. There was a financial transaction. A legal agreement was entered into. The couple was officially considered to be man and wife in every sense, except that they did not live together or have physical intimacy. The betrothal could only be broken by a divorce or by death of one of the parties. It was serious business. So Joseph, listen, he could have lessened his own shame. He could have tamped down the shame he was going to experience. He was still going to experience some. 
by not by taking Mary to court, he could have taken her to court for the divorce and then demanding back any money that he had given to Mary's family as a guarantee of his intention to take her as his wife. He could have done that. And yes, for Mary to be with child, by which would be assumed to be another man, would in fact still be a shame upon Joseph in the eyes of the community. Um, this culture of shame, you still go, you can still go to societies today where you still see this shame, honor culture being worked out, as in Pakistan. Pakistan is one of these cultures where there are honor killings. Have you ever heard of this? Honor killings where the male relatives of a woman in a family will kill her if there is some perceived or actual immorality on the woman's part that would bring shame to the family. That's how intense shame is in traditional cultures. It might not come to an honor killing, but it's very, very, very powerful. But Joseph instead chooses to divorce Mary quietly, which means that he would write her a letter of divorce and then declare that he divorced her in the presence of two witnesses. This was the quiet way to divorce her. And in choosing this route, Joseph demonstrated that he is more concerned with the welfare of this supposed sinner than he is with his own honor. That was his plan. So here's what we know about Joseph. Are you ready? This is why that that information I just gave you about shame, honor, betrothal, practices, all of that matters. Joseph is a man who cares more about mercy than he does about exacting justice against the offender. And that's important because the gospel writer Matthew is not just telling us this for our information. Here it is. But because Matthew, under the Holy Spirit, is concerned with communicating to his readers the ethics of the kingdom of God. Joseph is an example of what it means to live out the way of living in God's kingdom. And listen, brothers and sisters, this is not moralizing on Matthew's part. This isn't some kind of works righteousness given to us on Matthew's part. Rather, Matthew is concerned, like any other good first century Jew, with what it means to live a life in harmony with the will and the purpose of God. Matthew is concerned, what does it look like to live in harmony? And, that, and the will and purpose of God is summed up really in the word Torah. It means the way, we call it law many times, but the, the Torah was given centrally so that people could live in harmony with God's purpose and in harmony God's, with God's will. And that brings shalom. It brings peace to the individual, shalom being well-being, fulfillment, and not just to the individual, but to the entire community. And Matthew is saying, this is what belo- this what this is what brings shalom in the kingdom of God. Matthew takes three chapters, as a matter of fact. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He's so concerned about this way of living in God's kingdom that he takes three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to recount the Sermon on the Mount, which is the ethical manifesto of the kingdom of God. So Joseph is an illustration. Joseph is an illustration 
of the character of God's kingdom and of those who are living under God's reign. And here's what Joseph teaches us about the kingdom of God. And if you wanted something to write down, I would write this down. Are you ready? Redemption, new life, redemption, here it is, comes through mercy granted from the midst of great personal sacrifice. Redemption flows from mercy granted from the midst of great personal sacrifice. Joseph shows mercy. Personal sacrifice is his own honor and standing in the community. Do you see what's going on here? Why I'm even talking about that is because Joseph prefigures. He's the foretaste of God's mighty act in the boy he's going to raise to manhood, Jesus Christ. Joseph's adopted son, Jesus Christ, will offer the ultimate expression of this truth. Redemption comes through mercy granted from the midst of great personal sacrifice. Jesus will offer the ultimate expression of this when he embraces the cross and the shame that goes with it in order to save us for his great mercy's sake. When Joseph receives the message of the angel in the dream and the vision, he, he willingly identifies himself with Mary. He doesn't put her away. He willingly identifies himself with Mary. He willingly embraces the shame, are you listening, associated with Mary's untimely, in fact, Mary's unplanned pregnancy. This, is, this was the archetypal unplanned pregnancy. Mary was minding her own business. Gabriel shows up. Hey, Mary, guess what? The natural conclusion, though, in their community would have made it, would, that they would have made is that Joseph was the father. And in obedience to God and for love of Mary, Joseph joins himself with Mary, thus identifying himself with everything that little village is saying about Mary. And we know that Mary was experiencing some kind of shaming. How do we know that she was being actively shamed in the village of Nazareth? Well, because we know, and from Luke chapter 2, when there is a census goes out, you know, there, there a census in all the world by Caesar Augustus, right? And everyone went to his hometown to be counted. And Joseph went up to Bethlehem, right, in Judea, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Don't want to get to Christmas Eve just yet, but you know the story. But what does Joseph do? Here's the thing. As, as the male head of the household, Joseph had legal responsibility for his household. He alone was the only the one who had to, get, to go to, to get registered in Bethlehem of Judea. Mary didn't have to go. Why in the world would he have taken this very pregnant woman? I like the way it says in the King James Version, she was great with child. She wasn't even mediocre with child. She was great with child. She was a pregnant woman. And of course, we all know from, uh, from the authoritative Christmas cards that he put her on a donkey. That's not in the Bible, but I'm taking it for, for, for what it's worth. And they rode to Bethlehem. Why would he have done that? Here's why. He did it for Mary's safety. He did it to protect Mary from what was going on in Nazareth. He was not going to leave her there to bear the shame on her own that being associated with this child was bringing. 
In the same way, Jesus will identify with and completely wed Himself to sinful humanity, us, swallowed up in the very abyss of shame. And it is shame because it has to do with our identity. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not a thing we did, it's who we are. And we need someone to take that away. Mary and Joseph sacrificed their reputation, their position in society. They sacrificed their comfort and their security, but it was nothing in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make for them and for us. Now, this story that I've just told you of of shame being accepted, of mercy being granted throughout from, from the midst of great personal sacrifice, it is all one story. It is all one great theme that begins in the Garden of Eden and it climaxes with an empty tomb in another garden. The kingdom theme is restated. This theme is restated over and over, and it gets clearer and clearer until it is unmistakable as we come to the Gospels in the New Testament. It's like Ravel's Bolero. It's the world's most repetitive piece of music. The same theme is repeated and repeated with greater verve and increasing intensity, but it's the same theme. In fact, that's how Matthew reads all of Scripture. He reads the Scriptures as reverberating with this theme, prompted by the Holy Spirit. He sees the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, we heard it read this morning, which was originally about a geopolitical development in the 8th century B.C. He sees it actually as being, because he's prompted by the Spirit to see it this way, as being the same theme that is carried to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that theme in Isaiah's time and as it comes to fulfillment in Christ is this. Are you ready? God is going to save Israel. And then He's going to save through Israel the Gentiles as well. God is going to save Israel. And through Israel, He will save the Gentiles as well. Save them from what? From sin, death, and the grave. And that is why Joseph gives his son, his adoptive son, the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. And how is he going to save? Well, that's the other name that we just heard in this area. There's two names ascribed to Jesus here. I don't know if anybody ever did call him Emmanuel, but he gets called it right here in Matthew chapter 1. God was going to come and be with us. Emmanuel, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. God was going to come into our shame, into my shame, my personal shame. Now, you just let's just stop just a moment. There is something in all of us, you have had this experience, I've had this experience, where you feel that it is something not just that you have done, but there is something deeply wrong with me. And it may be something that was pointed out to you or by in, in a family or among friends growing up or something you just know about yourself 
or it's the, it's the universal shame that all of us bear as human beings of being rebels against our good and loving Creator. God was willing to come into that shame. He still is doing it today, this morning, and embrace it so completely that through His sacrifice, He was going to tra- change us from filth to purity, from darkness to radiance, from death to life, because He would come and be with us and take all that upon Himself. He was going to take the cross, the greatest symbol of shame in the world, in the world that the world knew that in that day for sure and still to this day. By fully accepting the pain and the shame of it, He would take that cross and turn it into the ultimate symbol of triumph and glory and not of death, but of life. We don't wear a cross. I'm not wearing this cross to make me think about death. I'm, make, I'm wearing this cross, this empty cross. It's a beautiful Celtic cross. But it makes me think of the fact that that is an empty cross, a finished work of redemption. The grave has been conquered. The cross is about life and not death. Because He took it on Himself and took our shame and everything that went with it and turned hell upside down. He is God with us in our shame so that He could transform you and me into something glorious. If I, I, over my Christian life and particularly over my time in ministry, God is, you know, everybody has a, a, a thing that God speaks through them or to them that adds a flavor to the body of Christ. You have been given special gifts. God is, has inspired you in special ways that that flavor about you as a follower of Jesus is essential to the body of Christ. And I'm beginning to perceive something that God has given me in my life as a Christian. And it is this, it is the theology of glory. That God means for us to share in His glory. God came with us to take our shame so that we could share His glory. It's the great shame exchange. He transforms us into something glorious. We are so easily pleased when what God really wants to give us is glory. His mercy would do what justice, or judgment, I should say. His mercy would do what judgment and law could never accomplish. It would transform our character to reflect His character, and His character is glory. If if the risen Christ were to come among us this morning, and He didn't turn down the rheostat a little bit, it would be like when He appeared to John on the island of Patmos, and he fell at his feet as one who was dead. He couldn't stand to be in his glorious presence. God wants to do that with us as well. He wants to make us glorious. We are drawn out of our shame. We're given garments of holiness and purity and rejoicing. That's what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he wrote in Mere Christianity. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest us filthiest of us, into a god or goddess, little g. Dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love, glory, as we cannot now imagine. 
a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to him perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. That theme goes on and on and will finally be fulfilled when the kingdom fully comes. But until then, God still seeks men and women who are willing to expose themselves to the shame of identifying with Jesus Christ just as Joseph and Mary were willing to do. Redemption flows from our willingness to bear the shame of bearing Christ for the sake of the world. There's no other way for redemption to come, brothers and sisters, except through the message that we bear to this day. Cleaving to Jesus Christ, cleaving to God's inspired, infallible Word, cleaving to the apostolic tradition of the church, in our age, in our day and time, will indeed invite shame. Read of a Michigan couple this morning, who just won a court case against their local community, their town, uh, for reasons I won't go into. But their Christian faith was expressly the reason that they were excluded from commerce in that town. You can go and read about it online. But they called those, that, those, those people's faith horrible, bigoted, and hateful. Shameful, in other words. Believing what we believe today about Jesus and obeying His commandments will bring upon us the shaming of the academy, the cultural elite, the, uh, the political ruling class, and yes, even our own friends and family and neighbors. Tim Keller writes, he said, the message is this, if Jesus Christ comes into your life, you're gonna, you are going to kiss your stellar reputation goodbye. And this is just Matthew 1. When we get to Matthew 2, Joseph will see that having Jesus in his life means not just damage to his social standing, but also danger to his very life. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus have to flee to Egypt to escape King Herod who wants to kill this child. So what is, Keller says, what is the application to us? If you want Jesus in your life, it's going to take bravery. But friends, if we claim Christ as our own, if we are willing to be identified with Jesus and all His fullness as revealed in Scripture, redemption will, redemption will flow from our willingness to be humiliated for the sake of Christ. God in His sovereign purposes, has set up His universe to work that way. If we bear the shame of Christ, we are opening the gateway for God's work of redemption in the world. This is why I'm so very, very concerned with a generation of Christians right now who are trying to accommodate the expectations and the moral standards of the world in order to evade the shame of standing boldly and clearly for Jesus. 
because there's no redemption in that. There's no transformation in that. You just get absorbed by the giant amoeba of the culture. And you don't bring transformation. Jesus is saying to us this morning, church, be like my mom and dad. Be willing to be shamed because of me. And if you do, I will come into the world in a fresh and powerful way through you. That holy couple was willing to bear shame, the threats, the murderous rage of King Herod in order to bring Jesus into the world, a world that desperately needs the one who is literally God with us. And that is the story of the church throughout the ages. Get this, this is mind-blowing. Are you ready? Until Jesus comes again, the church is God with us. This is crazy talk, so listen hard. Until Jesus comes again, the church is God with us for the sake of the world because we are the body of Christ. If we're the body of Christ, we're Christ in the world, God with us. And as such, we are called to be willing to enter into the shame and brokenness of those who still sit in darkness in order for us to be God's agents of transformation. And the theme goes on because even here at this table, this table, it, is, it looks fancy. It's just a supper table. It's a supper table. At this table, this humble table, just to remind us again, God is with us at this table. God with us. Wrapped not in swaddling cloths, and lying in a manger, but wrapped up in bread and wine and lying on this altar. So, friends, prepare on this last Sunday of Advent to come to the table of God with us, to come to the table of God with us, so that feasting in and on Him, you can go into the world as the body of Christ, joyfully bearing the redeeming shame of being Christ with them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christ Church, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.